The Ninth Circuit strikes down one of California's gun bans, plus an exclusive interview with Alan West on his bid to replace the NRA's Wayne LaPierre. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out a membership today if you would like to get exclusive access to our reporting and analysis that you will simply not find anywhere else. Uh, We take a sober, serious approach to firearms journalism, and we break some of the biggest stories out there in the gun world. And this week's story is about uh, our guest... Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who has decided to run uh, against Wayne LaPierre for uh, the executive vice president uh, position of the NRA. Uh, Welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We appreciate you joining us to give uh, a little bit more insight into your campaign here, what what you're doing. Obviously, this is a a board election, right? So it's not uh, the direct members who will decide uh, who be, who's ultimately picked for EVP, but uh, the board will vote on that. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting to have you on here, why you're running and some of your concerns and, and what you would do with the organization. So why don't we just start off mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, why, why are you running? Why did you decide to do this? Well, I was asked to by several uh, members, former members, current members, and uh, also others who are very concerned about the future of the National Rifle Association. I was contacted via email last week and asked to uh, think about this and consider it. And of course, they put out a press release saying that they were seeking to draft me. And I told them that I needed time with the the wife and the family to pray about this and to discuss it with them because it's a huge endeavor, uh, which definitely affects the family as well. A lot of travel time being away. And so over the weekend, we uh, made the decision to go forth. And I'm not running against anyone. I'm running for the National Rifle Association for its membership because I think it is so important when you look at the assault that the progressive socialist left is making against all of our constitutional rights, but most importantly about the Second Amendment rights, because as history has taught us, if you don't have the ability to protect and defend yourself, then you are open to tyranny and totalitarianism. And that's why they are seeking to tear down the Second Amendment here. We need a strong National Rifle Association in order to preserve that right and that freedom. Okay. Uh, Now, but certainly, obviously, the NRA had has a leader as uh, executive vice president right now, and it is Wayne LaPierre. Mm-hmm. And he's been in that position for, you know, 30 years, right? Um, and, and certainly he's been the subject of a lot of controversy the last several years, accusations of corruption, of misspending NRA money on personal expenses like private flights and suits and, uh, you know, yacht trips and vacations, things of that nature. Um, is that what ultimately is motivating you in, the, in this at all or, or, or what? Well, what's motivating me is a call to service. I mean, I served 22 years in the United States Army. My family uh, is all about serving this country. And on 31 July 1982, I took the oath to support and defend the Constitution. And so when I see that this organization, which is the nation's oldest civil rights organization, that is a defender of one of those constitutional rights and our Bill of Rights, we don't want to see our organization not be able to be focused and being out there on this ideological battlefield. So I think that when you look at the people who came to me, that's what the nature of a real true servant is and of someone that has taken the oath 
uh, to this country to support and defend the Constitution. That oath does not have a statute of limitations. So I'm not focused on a person. I'm focusing on making sure that the members get what they expect out of an organization that they're giving their donations to, their sweat equity and their treasure and their resources to be able to make sure that they have the ability to keep and bear arms. And uh, speaking of the people who who put together this draft campaign to get you to run, um, you got uh, the current board member, Phil Journey, right? Uh, and then a couple of former board members like uh, Rocky Marshall, for instance. Um, and, and they've been trying to reform the, in, the organization from inside for uh, several years now since these uh, corruption allegations broke uh, back in 2019. And, you know, they haven't been very successful in terms of, uh, you know, changing leadership or uh, in the bankruptcy, they tried to get an, an independent examiner appointed to look through the NRA's finances. They've tried to intervene in the uh, the New York lawsuit, uh, the corruption lawsuit against uh, the NRA, headed up by you know, uh, Attorney General Letitia James, Democrat there. Um, what makes you confident that you'll be more successful in this current uh, reform attempt? Well, I don't know if I will be successful, but you have to at least have the opportunity to try. The motto of the British Special Air Service, their SAS, is who dares wins. And so we sit back and do nothing. Uh, that's one of the things that Sir Edmund Burke talked about is all is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. So I applaud these uh, directors and former directors who understand their fiduciary responsibilities and duties to the membership of the National Rifle Association as board members to make sure that they're trying to correct this ship. And as you know, going back to 2019 in Indianapolis, I was uh, one of the first people that stood up and said, we've got to do better. We've got to regain the trust and confidence. And I did call for the uh, resignation of Wayne LaPierre. And of course, stepping out and doing that publicly, that uh, resulted in my losing a, a committee leadership position. I was set to be the uh, vice president of the uh, outreach committee and several other things. And uh, last year in August of 2021, when I see that there is no real effort to do what is necessary for the change in leadership, for the reformation of the National Rifle Association so that we can get back focused to our core competencies, I decided to resign quietly from the board uh, last fall. Why and why did you decide to do that quietly instead of uh, you know making more of a public statement about it? Because I'm a quiet professional. I say what needs to be said, and if people don't want to heed to it, uh, then I'll just uh, move on. Because I think one of the most important things for me, uh, having served in the military, is honor, integrity, and character. And I want to see that restored to the National Rifle Association. And I believe that there is a cabal of individuals that for whatever reason, they don't want to see these reforms, which is so necessary. And they have put this organization at risk. Uh, when you look at the lawsuits that is pending from the uh, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, and the uh, court trial is coming up in October. So either the board can decide that they want to reform and change the leadership or someone else is going to decide. And I don't think we want the state of New York making that decision. And obviously, Letitia James has uh, had a, a long term history with the NRA where she was one of its most vocal opponents in New York. She ran against the organization while she was campaigning to be attorney general called the NRA, um, you know, a domestic terror organization. Uh, the NRA says that this cast doubt on her claims about corruption about on this whole suit. Um, do you believe that her suit is politically motivated and therefore everything she said is in question or 
How do you view the situation? Well, everything about the progressive socialist left is intentional and purposeful, and they, without a doubt, have a target set on the National Rifle Association. But the other thing that you have to make sure of is that you never allow your enemy, your opposition, your adversary to have a gap by which they can exploit you. And so I think she has found that gap and she stepped right into it. And let's be very honest, none of these uh, claims or, or things, assertions or allegations have uh, planned out, panned out to be false. I mean, they're all true. And that has had a very detrimental effect on the National Rifle Association, its membership, its donations. Uh, we're not able to have the type of programs that we had, you know, a few years back. We've seen a lot of loss in staff members. And so by way of creating that gap so that she could come in and exploit this organization, uh, we're not able to focus uh, the NRA on its core competency and mission. And yeah, as you mentioned there, the NRA has lost about half of its revenue and and cut about half of its spending over the last uh, you know three years between 2018 and 2021, according to the uh, internal documents that that we published uh, last year. Uh, do you see? that as the direct result of, of this suit, or obviously COVID played a, a role there as well in the shutdowns and, and the issues that a lot of charities have. Um, do you, uh, are you just not confident in current leadership to recover from, from those losses? Well, it's not my confidence, it's the confidence of the membership. And I think that's what you see happening. And when I was on the board of directors, I get many letters addressed to me saying, because they knew that I was trying to take a stand for doing what is right and reforming the uh, National Rifle Association. There are many people that are concerned. Many people are saying that I'm just not going to donate my money again until I see some type of change, some type of reformation for this organization. So the membership, which is this is supposed to be serving. Uh, the organization is supposed to be serving, the board of directors are supposed to be responsible to, uh, they're not seeing the changes that they uh, think are necessary for them to uh, restore their uh, support to the organization. You know, there, there's uh, obviously something to be said about how far along this suit in New York is. Uh, you know, trial is coming up. Do you believe that by uh, changing leadership internally at this point, that's actually going to have an effect in that case. Do you think that will stave off this request from the attorney general to have a court appointed uh, overseers take take over control of the organization? Well, I agree. I, I think when you show that we're going to take corrective action, uh, you take away the sting that they're attempting to impart upon the National Rifle Association. So I think that's why this is a critical decision. And again, it's up to the board. Uh, I've, I've been on the board. I've been a firm supporter of our Second Amendment. Uh, people know my record and my history. And so that's what we're going to stand upon. But if the board makes a decision that they want to continue on the same course, uh, there are going to be consequences. There are going to be ramifications. And so why don't you give us your pitch for how you would do things differently if you were uh, mm -hmm. appointed to be elected to be executive vice president of the NRA? Well, the most important thing is you have to get back to restoring that trust and confidence of the membership in the organization. You have to get back to people understanding that this organization is going to be focused on honest uh, honor, integrity, and character, that we're going to be good stewards of the uh, donor money, and we're going to get back to those core competencies. The National Rifle Association was founded coming out of the Civil War because uh, they saw an issue with marksmanship. As a matter of fact, one of the first leaders was General Ambrose Burnside, the uh, 
the quote-unquote hero of Antietam. So we've got to get back to the shooting sports. We've got to get back to the marksmanship programs, all of those things that are really the foundation and core of the National Rifle Association. We've got to make sure that we're doing what is necessary to protect the Second Amendment and making sure that we're standing and make and uh, ensuring that we have those uh, candidates that are running out there that will support protecting that. But we also have to do what is necessary to protect the gun manufacturing industry and also the financial services that are tied to the gun manufacturing industry. So it's important that we work with them as well and start looking at how we can develop the means by which we can protect them because what the left is trying to do is attack the system of the Second Amendment, not just going after uh, the ability to own the, the weapon, but going after the weapon, going after the ammunition, going after everything that they possibly can. So we have to be uh, more proactive instead of reactive and meeting them there. But I think without a doubt, the most important thing is that uh, you have to be in constant contact with what is going on with the people there, have those staff meetings, uh, sitting down and talking with your direct reports, and then also making sure that you have that, that strategy and that plan that people can see and understand and they know exactly where you're trying to take this organization. But without a doubt, we've got to get back to our core competencies. I think one of the things that hurt the National Rifle Association when they uh, tried to go into this carry guard uh, this insurance program, because the NRA is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Of course, when you start to get into insurance, that's a for-profit thing. And that's where we got in trouble in the state of uh, New York. And so one of the main reasons that the NRA's revenues have fallen over the last several years is because their membership has fallen, mm -hmm. uh, even at a time where we've seen the creation of 13.5 million new gun owners, according yes. to you know the gun industry. Uh, and so how would you get those people back? How would you bring the people who've become skeptical of the NRA back into the fold? As, uh, That's what I'm do? saying. You have to eliminate that skepticism. People have to see and understand your reputation and that you are there to be a servant to them. And it's not about uh, self-service or it's not about special interest service, which I think uh, in many ways people are very concerned about that has happened in the National Rifle Association. They don't want to see a small little ball of individuals that are determining the direction and also getting financial benefit thereof. They want to make sure that when they're donating their money, that their return of investment is on those core competencies, as I talked about, the programs that the National Rifle Association stands for and also defense of the Second Amendment. So it's a trust and confidence issue. And uh, as far as transparency to the organization, bring that to members, how, how would you go about doing that? Well, uh, I think that you have to have that constant contact. Uh, one of the things I did when I was a member of Congress, at the end of every single week, I put out what I call the uh, the weekly sit rep. And those of us in the military, we know what that stands for, situation report. So I think it's important as the EVP is that you are constantly making sure that people understood the things that happened within that week, the decisions you had to make, and uh, what you're looking at doing in the following week. So no one is ever uh, under the suspicion that the NRA is going in a direction that they don't know or understand or don't agree with. And you have to have that uh, connection with them. I think one of the great things is to have a podcast like this where uh, members can dial in and ask questions of the EVP directly, have that maybe once a week or once every other week. Interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that's an uh, interesting approach to winning over some of the skeptical former members. Uh, now, of course, to get to EVP, you have to win over skeptical board members, and mm -hmm. you've received uh, already some very 
negative public attention from key members of the board, uh, specifically David Keene, who's a former president and current board member, uh, wrote uh, an entire op-ed in Ammo End, uh, decrying this campaign to get you to be, uh, you know, a candidate for EVP. And I wonder how you uh, can talk to someone like that, who's uh, and convince them that uh, you know your way is is uh, the the right way. Well, when I was a commander in the military, you always had the barracks lawyer. And you didn't uh, sit around and worry about appease and compromise and negotiating with the barracks lawyer. You stay true to your mission and to the uh, the unit and the soldiers overall. So the thing is that, you know, if this is going to be about the politics of character assassination, uh, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. And that's not relevant to me. And you should not be talking about me personally. You should be talking about how we can better this organization and take it into the future and make sure we secure its legacy. So I would tell you that uh, whatever comments that Mr. Keene has made is more of a reflection on him than it is of me. Yeah, I mean, uh, so he's painted you as uh, somebody who's more of a, a show horse rather than a workhorse, I believe were his words um, when it comes to, you, he says you're a very good gifted orator and good at giving speeches, but come, uh, accused you of not being able to follow through on some of the mm-hmm. positions you've held in the past, uh, you know, criticized your, your most recent run against uh, uh, Greg Abbott for governor in, in Texas, you know, he's painted this uh, idea of you as somebody who can't run an organization like the NRA. What do you what do you say to that? Well, I will tell you that as a young man in the ages of 40, I deployed 600 soldiers halfway across the world with millions of dollars of equipment into a combat zone. So I think that that is a proven testimony to my abilities and the American people trusted me with their most precious resource and that was the lives of their sons because I was in a combat unit. And once again, if you're sitting around talking about me and you're not talking about the organization, that's a testimony to what you feel is more important, uh, destroying me or defeating me. And, uh, you know, when I look at my time as the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, we flipped the Rio Grande Valley. And here in the Republican Party of Texas, uh, we had one of our legislative priorities, constitutional carry. Texas became the 21st state to get constitutional carry during my tenure as the uh, chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. That had not been done in the previous uh, eight or nine attempts to get constitutional carry done. So I think that's a testimony to my resolve, my resiliency and my determination when it comes to our Second Amendment rights. And so you're going to actually be the second person now to challenge uh, or to be put on the ballot alongside Wayne LaPierre or be nominated alongside him uh, for EVP uh, really in the last, I guess, 30 years. But the last one that happened was was last year with Rocky Marshall, mm-hmm. um, who's now supporting you. But at the time, he only got uh, two votes during that. Uh, that board meeting in in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Wayne got 44 votes. So, you know, it seems like that's a pretty big hill to climb. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what what is it that you think sets you apart in terms of uh, being more uh, appealing to the board members who are going to decide on this? Well, I think the board members have made that determination. My reputation precedes. And, uh, you know, that's what you're going to run on, my resume and my reputation. And if they decide that uh, I'm not the guy that they want to have and they want to continue down the path that they're on, 
then uh, I believe it goes back to what Albert Einstein once said, the pure definition of insanity is to continue to do the exact same thing and think you're going to get different results. So it is not on me. It is It would be on them. And again, I'm not looking at trying to get a, a new job or something like that. I'm quite busy as it is right now with the positions that I hold. But without a doubt, when someone calls and asks you to step up and serve and be a part of a constitutional uh, organization like the National Rifle Association is, a civil rights organization like the National Rifle Association is, you got to answer that call. And that's exactly what I've done. Okay. And, uh, you know, another interesting thing about that vote is uh, there, there are 76 board members. Yeah. Array. And um, so obviously that only adds up to 46. I believe there were three abstentions, people who actually were at the meeting. So that's 49. Um, absenteeism is, is really a big problem, even, even for the board meeting where uh, the board was deciding whether or not to approve the bankruptcy filing. I mean, mm -hmm. the, taking the largest gun rights group in the world into bankruptcy you still had uh, a large, large percentage of the board miss that vote altogether. Um, you know, is the board, <laughs> what do you, you were on the board. Yeah. Um, is the board too unwieldy as, as it is now? Is the structure of the NRA the right structure to move forward with to reform the organization? Mm -hmm. Well, I will tell you, if I'm correct, the world's largest uh, corporation, ExxonMobil, I believe they have about 15 or 16 board members. So I think that that's something that the board needs to look at uh, so that we pare it down and we make sure that we have board members that are going to be uh, responsible. They're going to be accountable and understand their fiduciary uh, responsibilities and duties. Uh, and I've always talked about maybe we need to look at bringing the board down to half of that, 36, or maybe even down to 18 instead of this unwieldy uh, 76 uh, board members. But that's something that the the board would have to discuss, but that's also something that the membership needs to be more concerned in. And I, and I think that it's important that the membership of the National Rifle Association uh, starts to allow, allow their voices to be heard. And of course, we'll have the annual meeting of the members uh, coming up in Houston on Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that, that gets to another point about uh, the structure, the way that the NRA operates. You know, board members, there's, you know, been at points, there've been over 5 million members, mm -hmm. uh, the NRA, but millions of those members aren't eligible to actually vote in the board elections. And then of course, uh, you have issues with uh, who gets to be on the ballot for those board elections, yes. because the nominating committee of the board gets to decide in large part who makes it on that ballot. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very difficult for people who want to reform the group to actually enact any sort of change through the the way that the NRA act, operates today, um, uh, you know, you have to be a lifetime member or a member for five years in order to vote. Mm -hmm. You know, you, they just actually made it more restrictive on who can run for the board in 2019 uh, by requiring you to be five years as a life member before you could mm -hmm. run for the board. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that make the internal changes take a lot of time and effort, mm -hmm. uh, which may be part of the reason why there hasn't been that much uh, internal change in terms of mm -hmm. uh, these last three years. So, you know, I guess it's just, do you think there should be a, a you know, a major overhaul of how the NRA operates? Or do you think this system is something that you can work into 
to enact change. Well, I think what you just talked about was the whole thing, again, about transparency, trust, and confidence. And it seems that you have an internal uh, cabal that is more so interested in protectionism than it is about service to the membership. And this is one of the things that the membership needs to speak up and speak out about uh, so that they can truly have a voice. Because when you start to narrow this down with such a select group or the ones that are really in control, and uh, back in 2016, I did not make it onto the NRA board by way of the nominating committee. Uh, they refused my nomination, even though I was recommended by a sitting board member, Bill Daly, or former board member, Bill Daly at the time. Uh, I did it by petition. And so you really are talking about what we see happening across the country is the grassroots versus what some people call an establishment. And that is uh, even playing out, I believe, in the National Rifle Association. And that's causing this uh, inertia or this paralysis and the lack of reformation that is needed uh, in order to make sure that this organization is protected from the outside leftist influences that are trying to take it down. But of course, the people in charge of the NRA, including David Keene, who, who has also been in charge of the American Conservative Union, you know, which runs CPAC and, uh, you know, has been in conservative politics for a long time. They argue that 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 leadership structure, that those leaders who are in place, especially Wayne LaPierre, have been the reason that the NRA has had so much success over the last several decades, you know, changing gun carry laws, uh, you know, uh, electing President Donald Trump. There's There's all sorts of uh, accomplishments that they'll point to as to why this this structure works and why current leadership is right. And then, of, of course, they will say that the accusations uh, are, aren't true. Do you like how is what's your perspective on that defense? Well, it kind of goes back to the Janet Jackson song. What have you done for me lately? And I think that when you look at what is happening right now in the organization, if you want to be uh, delusional and bury your head in the sand and say that everything is hunky-dory and everything is okay, then that's the gap that uh, allows you to be exploited. And that's exactly what we see happening right now with the uh, situation that the NRA is, is in with the lawsuits and the things that are happening. And of course, the uh, death by a thousand cuts, the slow dripping, uh, where you see the NRA is bleeding resources and bleeding donations and bleeding memberships. Okay. And so... You know, obviously, I'm sure there's there will be plenty more debate over over, uh, you know, Lane's leadership and 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 your candidacy here. But uh, one thing I, I would also wonder about is um, your philosophy for the NRA going forward. If you do uh, become EVP, uh, you've obviously been the, the chairman of the Texas Republican Party. Uh, you know, the NRA has been accused of moving in two parties in a direction towards the Republican Party um, that, you know, appealing to a very specific kind of gun owner at the cost of appealing to other sorts of gun owners out there. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Do you think that the NRA is um, is right to focus on, uh, you know, politically engaged conservative gun owners mm -hmm. who tend to vote Republican? Or do you think that, you know, there's more room to uh, try and appeal to other demographics that own guns. I, you know, I'm just trying to get mm -hmm. what your your point of view is and what direction you would take the NRA in that regard. Well, the, the fastest growing demographic right now for gun owners are females, women. 
And I think that we have to continue to be able to support them. And when you look at what is happening, especially in our minority communities and the inner city communities, with this uh, rampant rise in crime, the gang violence, the drug uh, trafficking and violence, and also we see this uh, bail reform where we have uh, violent criminals being released back onto the streets. I think that you have to attack this from a governing philosophy perspective and not a political party perspective. And when you understand our Bill of Rights, when you understand our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our Constitutional Republic, uh, the Declaration of Independence, all the founding documents of this nation, it is all about the individual, their rights, their liberties and their sovereignty. And the individual is sovereign over the institution of government. And when we make that argument to any uh, group, black, white, Hispanic, you know, it doesn't, Asian, it doesn't matter. We talk about individual rights, freedoms, and liberties. The only way you maintain the other uh, rights and privileges and freedoms that you have and liberties in the Constitution of our Bill of Rights is that you have that Second Amendment. And again, as I said, history has shown when you disarm people, you turn them into serfs and you turn them into subjects. Look at what is happening in China right now, where the government has told people that they have to stay locked in their houses, they can't come out. But uh, the exact same thing was happening here in the United States of America. And no politician has the enumerated power to decide who or what is essential. But if all of a sudden we go down the path of uh, the Hugo Chavez's and uh, others who have said that the very first thing they wanted to do was take away the individual's ability and to, to own uh, weapons, then it doesn't end up well. And I think that the strongest organization can make sure that we preserve this constitutional republic is the National Rifle Association. Um, and, and, you know, I guess just my a lot of there are people who criticize the NRA for being too partisan, for being too uh, bombastic and. And you are somebody who is very forceful in your rhetoric and which appeals, I think, to a lot of uh, probably a lot of NRA members, but does turn off some people. Right. And, and either, so I guess either you either you respect and honor the Constitution or you don't. And again, it comes back to the oath that I took in July 1982, the oath that my dad took, my older brother took, my nephew took. And today, my son-in-law took that oath. He's going to be enlisted into the United States Army that we would uh, su support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And right now, when you see what is happening in America, there is no doubt that people are seeking to undermine uh, and to take away our constitutional rights and liberties that are enumerated in the Bill of Rights. And so we have to stand up and fight for that. Okay, understood. Congratulations, by the way, uh, nice. on that. That's wonderful news. Um, now, I guess uh, just to wrap things up here, because I know you know you're a busy guy and you have uh, another, uh, you have other stuff to to get back to. But what what is your final message to the board members who are going to decide decide this issue uh, at the end of this month? Well, choose for yourselves. Uh, I think that everyone on that board knows who I am and what I stood for there being on that board from 2016 to 2021. People know my support of the Second Amendment. People have seen me stay here. I mean, stand up strong here in Texas to make sure that we got constitutional carry here uh, and many of the other things that I see happening that are undermining that Second Amendment right. So the members will know that they will have someone that will be out there working for them and serving them and not serving any other interests other than the interests of the NRA membership. So that's pretty much so the case. Uh, do you plan to be at the annual meeting, I assume? Yeah. Uh, yep. It's just a drive right down. Now, unfortunately, uh, on Saturday, I have some events because it is Memorial Day weekend, mm -hmm. and I have some events that were previously scheduled, but I'll be down there on Friday and also on Sunday for the uh, NRA annual meeting. 
And will you be at the board meeting on, on Monday as well? Monday, I have to be in Paris, Texas from uh, 10 to about 1230 for a Memorial Day weekend event. So uh, my heart is with those who made the last full measure of devotion. And the board's going to decide whatever they're going to decide, whether I'm there or I'm not there. But I'd rather be there to support our fallen comrades. Okay. And uh, that, that meeting will be open to NRA members, uh, right, I believe, uh, all, we all shall the board see. meetings are, yeah, uh, unless they see. go into executive session. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on and answering some of the tough questions and giving us your view of this whole situation and, sure. and uh, you know, your plan for how you would uh, personally change things. So uh, thanks again for joining us and uh, My hopefully pleasure. we can have you on uh, again in the future as well. I look forward to it, Stephen. Take care of yourself. All right. We're going to head over to the news segment, the news update segment now, um, okay. and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. All right, it's time for the weekly news update. Uh, I'm here with Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you this week, Steve? I'm doing good, Jake. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, we've got some big news this week, a lot of big gun stories, particularly out of California, one of which you wrote about. We got a, a new pro Second Amendment ruling from the Ninth Circuit, if you want to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a three judge panel on the Ninth Circuit. They found that California's ban on 18 to 20 year olds owning centerfire semi-automatic rifles uh, is unconstitutional. It violates the Second Amendment. And they uh, ordered the lower court to to go back and reconsider the case on those grounds. Interestingly, they they did uphold a different uh, ban, which was California's ban on 18 to 20 year olds owning long guns, because that ban has more exceptions, a broader exception for anyone who obtains a hunting uh, license. So uh, they, they upheld that one, but they struck down the what was much closer to a total ban on semi-automatic centerfire rifles. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. As you said, I, they're allowed to uh, continue requiring that someone in that age group obtains a hunting license before they purchase, which I think is an interesting distinction to draw in this case. Um, but the judge, mm -hmm. in his opinion in this case, uh, really pointed to a lot of interesting history about um, uh, Americans in this age range having a long tradition of owning and bearing arms. Um, I, I thought that was particularly interesting. He had a really good quote from the from the judge in this case, uh, talking about basically the history of young adults since the time of the revolution yeah. <laughs> carrying guns. Yeah, he said uh, this was um, what's his name. He's a Trump appointee, uh, Judge Ryan D. Nelson, uh, and his his quote was. Uh, America would not exist without the heroism of, young, of the young adults who fought and died in our revolutionary army. Today, we reaffirm that our Constitution still protects the right that enabled their sacrifice, the right of young adults to keep and bear arms. So this was, uh, it was, it was essentially an age discrimination suit, right? Or, uh, it was a Second Amendment suit, but it was based on this idea that um, you can't bar adults under the age of 21 from owning uh, semi-automatic centerfire rifles, you know, complete. There was an exception for law enforcement and military people in law enforcement and, and the military, but uh, the court found that that was much too limiting, and that the logic used by the state in this case didn't work. It didn't create a. There wasn't a reasonable fit between what they wanted to accomplish by um, reducing gun crime in California. And how they went about doing it, which was by effectively just banning everyone from 18 to 20, 
uh, from owning these sorts of rifles. Um, so, you know, they, they basically they found that it, one, they, it's interesting, they went to strict scrutiny for uh, sort of the legal nerds listening. Um, <laughs> on this question, they went to strict scrutiny, which is which means that, uh, you know, it's a much higher level of review where most government restrictions fail to pass muster uh, under strict scrutiny. And, uh, and then they also argued that it wouldn't have passed under uh, intermediate scrutiny either, which is uh, the next step down uh, as far as, uh, you know, legal standards go. But, sure. uh, you know, they, they effectively they just found that this law was punishing the vast majority of 18 to 20 year olds based on the idea that uh, some small minority of them uh, would commit crimes with these firearms. Sure. And, you know, because this is a Ninth Circuit ruling, there's kind of that old this basically a lot of time when you see any kind of Ninth Circuit ruling, um, there's the threat of it going to the full panel. Um, did mm -hmm. you I know you spoke reached out to the California Attorney General's office. Did they did you get any indication from them what might be coming next? Yeah. So they told us basically that um, they're reviewing the decision and that they'll continue to defend California's gun laws. So essentially they didn't say yes or no, we're going to request an en banc, you know, hearing of this case. But uh, I think if you're a betting person, <laughs> yeah. uh, you would bet on them absolutely asking for an en banc review and, and on that en banc review coming back in favor of California, as has ha happened several times uh, in recent memory here. Uh, most notably, uh, November of last year, you had the magazine ban uh, right. was, was overturned as unconstitutional. Um, same with the assault uh, weapons lower ban. court, and then yeah, and the, and then it was held upheld by the en banc panel. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's going to probably end up that way, uh, but we'll, we, you never know uh, until they actually do it. Sure, uh, especially because as you pointed out, they applied a strict scrutiny anal <clears throat> analysis to this law, mm -hmm. which I have a hard time seeing the Ninth Circuit allowing that to be you know, precedent for reviewing these types of cases. Because right. as you said, in, under a strict scrutiny regime, the government basically loses. Um, and I don't think California or the Ninth Circuit is going to allow that to stand where they have a, a gun control analysis where the government loses. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, certainly it is helpful to the plaintiffs in this case, which, by the way, yeah. were, there were a number of gun rights groups involved, the uh, Firearms Policy Coalition, um, the Cal Guns Foundation, uh, Second Amendment Foundation, we're all plaintiffs in this case. And, uh, you know, it helps them if, if they ever do make it up to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, we're obviously looking well ahead here, but uh, if it goes through en banc and, and the panel finds the state law is, is, is constitutional, then the fact that it got struck down earlier could help in a um, appeal up to the high court. But, but that's, a, that's a ways off from this point. Uh, it was interesting to read some of the back and forth between the, the judges in this case. There were two Trump appointees and one Clinton appointee. And while well, they came out the way you probably might expect based on those, uh, the political considerations there. But, <clears throat> um, you know, the effectively the, the dissenter in this case, uh, the Clinton appointee, whose name is, um, oh, what, what is uh, his name? Judge Stein. Yes, Stein. Thank you. Um, Stein, he effectively argued that California 
uh, ought to be able to uh, enact this ban because, uh, well, because young people uh, in that age bracket, age bracket uh, are more statistically more inclined to commit violent crimes and therefore, um, you know, this sort of prohibition is appropriate as a way to lower the, the gun crime rate in California. Um, now, certainly, uh, this was this is a, a controversial idea that Judge Lee, uh, Kenneth Lee, who was the other Trump appointee, he actually wrote a concurrence that sort of went a little further into pushing back on this particular argument. Uh, but he argued that, I mean, you could use that justification to um, infringe upon the right of any particular group based on a small percentage of, uh, you know, bad actors in, in the tar inside of that targeted group. Uh, and so, uh, so he said, uh, here's a quote from, from Judge Lee, if California can deny the Second Amendment right to young adults based on their group's disproportionate involvement in violent crimes, then the government can deny that right as well as other rights to other groups. For example, California arguably has more a more compelling case if it enacts a similar gun control law that targets males of all ages instead of young adults. Statistically, or statistics and science show that men almost exclusively commit violent crimes. So, <clears throat> you know, he was sort of pushing back on the the basic argument at the heart of, of how California tried to justify this ban, right. which is that, you know, young this demographic commits violent crimes more frequently so we can restrict their you know gun rights in certain ways but it's you know fairly obvious why that line of thinking is problematic for a lot right. of people yeah and this is where the strict scrutiny analysis comes in because obviously that's yeah, not very narrowly tailored to advancing the government's interests which obviously is always keeping people safe right that's right. valid Sure. <laughs> but just to blanketly say, well, some of these people commit a lot of crimes, so all of them are now prohibited from purchasing guns. It's not very narrowly tailored, and it's not going to pass muster under an yeah. analysis like that. Stein had another argument that I thought was interesting, which which dealt more with the history um, aspect of this case, the historical restrictions on gun ownership. He pointed to this idea that um, uh, during the founding era, people between the ages of 18 and 20 or anyone under 21 was considered either an infant or a minor and therefore could have their um, gun rights restricted. And he said, quote, moreover, the historical record is replete with laws restricting the possession by and sale of firearms to minors. Uh, so he's sort of effectively saying that people under 21, his, at least historically, were not actually considered adults uh, as in, insofar as it pertains to gun ownership, at least that, that was his argument. Right. Um, now, uh, the other judges were not persuaded by this. Uh, sure. Nelson, he said, uh, the, the judge who wrote the, the majority opinion said that, um, you know, the, the argument that the second amendment applies only to adults is quote, uh, you know, strays from the most obvious historical interpretation and would need to be quote supported by powerful evidence to be convincing. But he said it is not. So, uh, and he pointed to, um, the second amendment, here's his final quote from him before he wrapped this up, uh, this case up the, the second amendment refers to the militia 
and young adults had to be in the militia and bring their own firearms. This reference implies at least that young adults needed to have their own firearms. So, um, you know, that was the sort of some of the historical back and forth in this case on, uh, cause we've talked about this before with, uh, when we talked about the text history tradition standard that a lot right. of um, pro-gun activists are pushing for judicial review, you know, that's not necessarily as clear cut as I think a lot of people um, like to believe. I mean, certainly the Duke uh, Farms Law Center has a whole catalog of gun control laws that go back, um, you know, in, into the 17th or 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's interesting to see that that play out in an actual court case like this. Yeah, but it's it, it as you pointed out, the fact that uh, judges on both sides of the argument are now appealing to that, appealing to the historical record is kind of a win for uh, firearms plaintiffs in terms of where the jurisprudence has shifted since Heller. The fact that you now have judges on both sides of the issue now appealing to text history and tradition, whereas that wasn't typically the case before. So yeah. it's interesting where the Overton window has moved. Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, another story that we had this week from you uh, could turn into a, a court case relatively sure. soon, or is a court case uh, in a certain regard. But might might this particular change might add fuel to it? And it's also out of California, but, uh, which is that the state removed uh, H and K's popular USP handgun lineup from the safe guns roster. Uh, can you give us a little more detail about what the, what happened and what it means? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's pretty sudden. Uh, no one really had any warning. It just uh, a, a bulletin was distributed by the California DOJ to all the FFLs in the state, essentially listing by model all of the USPs that were remaining on California's handgun roster, saying that they were no longer certified and thus could no longer be sold legally in the state. Um, and and it failed to elaborate why and just deferred everyone's questions to H and K. Yeah, it's weird, right? They, they, they're removing USPs from this list of guns that you're allowed to buy in California, which for people who don't know is they have a list called the safe, uh, the handgun roster, which is supposed to list, uh, you know, safe handguns that can be legally bought by Californians. Um, you know, they have to have a number of different features, but. Uh, they removed these guns from that list and then didn't say why. They said, go talk to H&K, right. <laughs> which is kind of weird. You reached out to both, but uh, you didn't hear anything substantive back from either one, right? Yeah, H&K never responded. And then the California DOJ just reiterated their bulletin that they sent out to the FFLs to me. Um, so we don't have a lot of you know clarity on what could have caused this. Um, under state law, there's a, a couple reasons why uh, a handgun might get re removed from a roster. Um, one is just that a company that has an approved handgun fails to pay California's annual fee associated with the privilege of having their handgun on the roster. Um, so that's a possibility, and that could be why they're deferring people to H&K. We don't know. Hmm. Um, a couple of the other criteria is that uh, a gun maker might alter the design of a, a handgun that was previously approved. And once it's been altered, it no longer qualifies as approved on the roster. And then third, the state can just suddenly decide, oh, upon further review, this actually isn't a safe handgun and therefore it can't be sold in the state anymore. So a little unclear as to what happened here with the USPs. Um, nothing has really changed with the USPs since they've been approved. Uh, so it's tough to say for sure what happened to get them all kicked off the list. 
Yeah, and I we should get into a little bit of why why I think this might <clears throat> embolden the legal challenges to the handgun master or create new ones. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, so California's uh, handgun roster law goes back to 2001, but over time it has kind of gradually ratcheted up with what criteria is involved in getting approved for sale. Right. Um, particularly with their most recent addition of micro stamping requirements. Uh, for those of you who don't know, micro stamping in theory is the idea that a gun's firing pin will imprint a unique symbol basically on the primer or the, yeah, the primer of a spent shell casing. And that supposedly will help law enforcement be able to associate uh, a shell casing found at a crime scene or whatever uh, with a particular gun. The only problem I think is they want to. Do, I think they want to put imprinted on two different parts somehow. I think um, so too. Yeah. As well. Basically, the only problem with that is it's a pretty fickle technology. It's not really worked out yet. No one's really been able to master it. Um, and as a result, well, nobody you know, nobody makes these guns, right? Nobody nobody anywhere in the world makes a gun that has micro stamping technology in it. Right? Correct. Yeah. Nothing that's commercially available, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware. Um, and so because of that, all these new guns that come out don't meet California's requirements and can't be added to the list. Um, and so I believe uh, not a single new gun has been added to the list since 2013 or 2014. Mm -hmm. um, so that's eight years. <laughs> that's eight years where nothing has been added. But as you see, they can uh, uh, you know, overnight take a whole sweeping list of approved pistols off the list. Yeah, from a um, major manufacturer too. Yeah. H&K is not some small company. Right. H&K is a very popular gun maker. The USP is a very popular line of guns. Um, and the fact that they also <laughs> passed another addition to this roster, uh, it hasn't gone into effect yet, but it will this summer, where if they ever get around to approving another handgun, the state automatically must remove three models or three handguns for every additional handgun they do approve. So you, you right. just get a diminishing supply. <laughs> Which has a lot to do with safety somehow. Right. Yeah, um, I guess like it's three previous guns that were deemed safe by the state are no longer safe because they added a new model. Right. Right. Which there's not a lot of logic in there. I don't think. Well, but I mean, of course, I think a lot of people would question the very concept of this safe handgun roster because uh, who's exempted from the, <laughs> from from this list? Right. Yeah. As usual, law enforcement. Uh, is exempt so they yes. are allowed to own and carry unsafe handguns around the state right, <laughs> right. which makes uh, very little sense if your goal is to if your interest here is about the safety of the handgun involved um you know right. and then obviously the vast majority of other states do not have such uh, a roster there are a couple states though that do have there are a couple other ones that have rosters, but they they treat theirs a little differently, right? Yeah, yeah. Maryland and Massachusetts both have handgun rosters. Um, but just my cursory review of theirs, the guns that they seem to have included on their prohibited roster list are like really old and really cheap pistols. Um, so kind of a bias towards what they think are crime guns, essentially, are the ones that aren't allowed to be uh, owned. But they have most of the new models get added to their list as long as they're compliant with things like the magazine capacity restrictions and whatnot. Right. Um, so it's just California's that has this sort of arbitrary tailor tapering down over time. Yeah. And so as we see these, these legal challenges pile up in California uh, and have more success, uh, and we see the Supreme Court moving in, in a more conservative direction, potentially, uh, 
uh, you know, this this particular regulation, because it's so close to Heller, which was about the banning of handguns. Right. Uh, it seems prime for, you know, another Supreme Court crack at this whole situation. Um, and so that'll be very interesting to watch. I think that I think we're going to see movement on that uh, if they continue to push things in this direction, especially. Yeah. And obviously, there's still California is huge. It's a massive state with a lot of uh, people in it and a lot of gun owners. And so these, you know, companies are still making these older generation guns like Glock. I think the last one approved was Gen 3. And now they're their most modern ones are Gen 5. Uh, so but they're still producing those older ones to sell in California because it's still a, a big market. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe some down, sometime down the line too, you might see more industry resistance uh, to policies like this if they push, if they continue to remove guns from the approved list, uh, you know, because they could always refuse to sell to California law enforcement or service the guns that they've sold them. There's all kinds of things the industry could do if it wanted to sort of, uh, you know, go full force against this. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we were more likely to see a, a legal challenge succeed before something like that happens, but we'll, we'll keep a watch, right? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, this provides great fodder for a, an interesting lawsuit because does this qualify as a de facto handgun ban over time if you're just whittling away the supply of what you can buy and not adding anything? And there's already a, a pending legal challenge from the Firearms Policy Coalition over this yep. provision. So it's uh, already getting started. I will say that the California Supreme Court, the state court, did uphold the the roster um, in, a, in a previous case uh, so, you know, they have had some success in defending the law thus right. far. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's, the question is really how far can they push this before the, especially the federal courts start to, to really step in and, uh, and take notice. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that remove three to add one law is kind of symbolic at this point because the micro stamping requirement makes it effectively impossible to add new guns, but Right. If it ever did uh, happen, you know, you're going to see that list get whittled down to nothing pretty fast. That's right. Uh, it's already super limited. So you have these sort of random, no explanation removals that they keep piling up to. That's another, you know, a, another sort of waving the, the red flag in front of the bull situation with federal yeah. courts. But we'll have to wait and see what what comes of all this. Um, but anyway, that's it for this week. We appreciate you guys tuning in for another episode. Um, if you want to read more of our reporting, please head over to thereload.com. Sign up for our free newsletter if you haven't already. And if you appreciate the kind of journalism that we produce here, informed, independent journalism, then consider buying a membership where you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces. That And you'll also get the Sunday newsletter where you'll get this podcast a day early too. Uh, and the opportunity to appear on the show. We need to have another member segment coming up uh, very soon. Um, so if you want, if you're a member already and you want to be on the show, just reach out, send a, send an email, reply to your Sunday newsletter and we'll get you on the show. Uh, we love talking to you guys. Um, but yeah, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll, we'll be back again soon.